Stick a little something for them cars that be bumping. Yeah, right, but we need a beat that they can front to. Oh, that'll work. Be funky. You know what I'm saying? Hello, greetings and hi. This is the Head Speaks Podcast, a proud member of the Headcast Network. I am your host, Aaron Moss, also known as Head. Welcome to Head Speaks, where I'll be talking about comics, movies, and basically anything geeky. But without further preamble, let's get the show started. Welcome, one and all, to the 27th episode of Head Speaks. Yes, I'm around for 27 episodes. I've been doing it mostly monthly, so that means 27 months. It's a little over two years. I'm impressed and surprised myself. But, enough preamble. Uh, let's go ahead and get started with today's show. First up, I present to you... month we're going to talk about a movie, a little movie, called The Killing Joke. Spoilers! Uh, you should be warned right now that this 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 part of this uh, podcast is going to contain spoilers for The Killing Joke movie, The Killing Joke comic. So if you haven't seen the movie, if you don't want to be spoiled, if you haven't read the book, you may want to avoid this section of the podcast uh, because this is going to contain spoilers. Uh, you have been warned. Yes, The Killing Joke was made in a movie. Um, if you guys are long-term listeners, long-term, long-time listeners to my podcast, uh, you may remember this may sound familiar to you because I did cover this movie back. I forget what it was. It was here a while back on Head Speaks. It's based on a comic book written by Alan Moore with art done by the delightful and, and beautiful. Well, he's beautiful, but the art's beautiful. Brian Boland. In fact, I reviewed that back before I, I decided to not really have any cussing on my podcast if I get away with it. And uh, as a buddy of mine, Romero, said, he's never heard someone use the F word to describe art so much as I used in that episode. Because I just love Brian Boland's art in that book. But enough of that book. I have talked about that enough. Uh, for now, let's go and look at the movie itself. The Killing Joke was directed by Sam Liu, produced by Bruce Tim, Alan Burnett, Burnett, sorry, and Sam Redstar, written by Brian Azzarello. As I said, it was based on The Killing Joke by Brian Boland and Alan Moore. The movie starred Kevin Conroy as Batman, Mark Hamill as the Joker, Tara Strong as Batgirl, and Ray Wise. The release was on July the 22nd of 2016 at the San Diego Comic Con, and I believe it was released digitally at the same time. And then it was released July 25th on video across the United States. The running time was 77 minutes. And now for my talk about The Killing Joke. And again, this isn't going to be a full-blown review, uh, such as I did with the Suicide Squad over on my Task Force X podcast. Uh, But just since I've covered the actual comic, I felt it appropriate. I spent at least a few minutes talking about uh, the movie that they've done based on that book. As if you that's listened to my podcast know, I, I loved 
L-O-V-E-D, loved the book when it came out. Had beautiful artwork, had a good story. The story was basically uh, a possible origin for the Joker. Uh, and that was the main gist. It was a story behind for the Joker, giving him kind of an origin. But as the Joker said in that book, life's multiple choice, why can't his origin? So it's not, this is the Joker's origin. It's like, this could be the Joker's origin. And anyways, I thought it was a great story. Go back and uh, listen to episode 10 of Head Speaks, where I do my review of The Suicide Squad, the graphic novel. But enough about that. Let's get into the movie itself. Basically, The Killing Joke is it's two stories in one movie, if you will. Uh, the first half hour or so tells uh, is a Batgirl story. And the last half of it or so is The Killing Joke. Because The Killing Joke by itself is not long enough for a full-length feature movie. So they need to add some, some story to it to give it a little bit more length, if you will. Um, so the first part tells, basically it's a story of Barbara Gordon. Uh, she stops a criminal using with Batman's help. Uh, the guy's name was Paris Franz. He's uh, the mob robs, robber, robber's leader and nephew of a power, powerful mob boss. Develops an obsession. Try that again. He develops an obsession with Batgirl. Starts sending her messages. Uh, after Franz tricks her to find her uncle's dead body, Batman becomes concerned about her safety. Takes her off the case. Uh, outraged, Batman attacks, attacks Batman which somehow leads to rooftop Batman-Batgirl sex. Next night, Batgirl tries to apologize. He's ambushed by France and his men, uh, prompting her to come to his aid. When she arrives, she overpowers France. He makes his move. She loses control and gives him a savage beating, stopping short of just killing him. Realizing Batman is right, she retires from crime fighting. Uh, that's the first part that was basically tacked onto the killing joke. Uh, the rest of the story is a pretty faithful, I say in quotes, adaptation of the killing joke. One thing, uh, let me see, let's look at the first part of the story first, then I'll get to the killing joke portion of it. And I'm doing that because these are basically two different stories. This first part is trying to give Batgirl, since she's the one that gets crippled in the main story, a little more character development, if you will. Uh, does it work? Well, again, I'm not going to do a full-on review. I'm just going to give some highlights of it. I'm going to say no. Uh, this gives a reason Batgirl gives up being Batgirl before she becomes before before the story of the Killing Joke. Uh, they did something similar in the comic. They had a Batgirl special that came out sometime before the Killing Joke, where the Batgirl retired from being Batgirl. It's been a while since I've read that special, but from my memory, they did a better job of her retiring than this movie did. Uh, the the artwork in the movie, and again, it relates to the whole movie, and I'll talk touch on this more when I get to the Killing Joke portion of it. It wasn't as good. It, it's not Brian Boland. I'm sorry, whoever the art team on this was, the the animators, art team animators on this was. It just wasn't that great, in my opinion. It was. It was. Uh, Hmm. It wasn't horrible, but it, when you're you taking a, a book by Brian, uh, I'm sorry, by uh, Brian Bolin, who, who's a fantastic Batman artist in this book, and you're you're animating it. If you don't have the best of the best on it, it's going to come off lacking. 
And maybe if you if I hadn't seen the or read, read the actual comic, it might not be quite so bad. But I have I've got that comic in my mind as I'm watching this movie. It fails to live up to it. My second major problem with this is that, as I mentioned in the synopsis, uh, there is a scene with uh, Batman and Batgirl on the roof. They're fighting and arguing. And somehow this turns into superhero sex on the roof. I, I, hmm. I know in the animated series at some point they try to hint some relationship between the two. I, it doesn't sit well with me. I mean, I've grown up with uh, Batgirl being a subordinate, subordinate of Batman. Uh, originally, I mean, her and Robin had a thing. Dick Grayson, they had a thing going. So to me, Barbara Gordon's always supposed to be with Dick or, you know, someone around his age. Not Batman, who, in my opinion, should be 10, 15 years older. Not saying anything wrong with a 10, 15 year age gap, but it doesn't, I mean, this is like uh, a guy or a woman having relations with her boss at work. It just doesn't come across right. Whereas with her and Dick gets together, where he, whether he's Robin or Nightwing, even if she is a little older than him, they're more contemporaries or they're co-workers. A romance between them is not as bad as between Batgirl and her boss, basically. And that's what it comes across to me. Um, in fact, a little quote from Wikipedia from Brian Azzarello. Uh, he says, in response to the criticism of the prologue, Brian Azzarello stated, the thing about this that is controversial, talking about the killing joke itself, it was very controversial, so we wanted to add more controversy. To me, that's that, that statement right there. I saw that online when this first came out, before I saw the movie. That statement there screams at me wrong-headedness. Uh, this tells me that Brian Nazarello shouldn't have been the guy to write this movie. Uh, if you want to throw something in there just for controversy's sake, it's wrong. You shouldn't do that. Uh, Tim Further, Tim Further, Tim, uh, Bruce Tim, who was on the old Batman animated series, the whole Tim universe, it was, he was a fantastic character creator on the Batman animated series and Superman and Justice League Unlimited and all that stuff. He did fantastic. I'm a little disappointed that he was involved with this, with this as poorly as this came out to be, in my opinion. But Bruce, his comment is, we were aware that it's a little risky. There's definitely some stuff in the first part of the movie that's going to be controversial. The Batman Robin, or Batman and Batgirl rooftop sex scene, in my opinion. Here's where we came down on that specific issue. It was really important to show us that both the characters make some pretty big mistakes. I mean, his parental skills aren't that great. Again, see, he says parental skills. Uh, it makes it even more creepy. Uh, continuing on, maybe never having any kids of his own. He doesn't realize that if you tell a kid to not do something, they're going to do it anyway. And then she makes some mistakes. He kind of overreacts. And she overreacts to his overreaction. So it's very human. It's very understandable. It's tricky. It's messy because relationships are sometimes messy. But to me, Alan O'Brien, it's all fascinating to us explore that angle. He made comments in there about parental skills and basically Batman being a surrogate parent for Batgirl. Maybe this thing's about your guys' childhood, but that's kind of messed up. Batman and his, his daughter figure, in quotes, having sex is just... And that's the way it comes across to me, is, is a parent having sex with his, sex with his daughter. 
And maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm just getting old and I need to tell some kids to get off my lawn. But I, I just think that was wrong. Uh, that's my whole problem with this beginning. Well, one of my problems with this beginning part. That and it's just not very well written. It's not very well drawn. I just this whole first part of this movie, I, I just don't care much for. I, I've made comments about the art or the animation. I made comments about the writing and or directing uh, the voice talents. Uh, I, I didn't mention that yet, other than the, the voices. Uh, the voice talent on this was fantastic. I mean, Kevin Conroy is the voice of Batman to a generation. Mark Hamill is the voice of the Joker to everybody. Tara Strong is Barbara Gordon Batgirl. She does a fantastic job. Ray Weiss, Commissioner Gordon, he did a great job. Uh, everyone else on here, as far as voice-wise, did a good job vo voicing them. I mean, I had no problem with any of the voices. Uh, my only problem is, you know, with the animation of it and with the the this beginning parts, it's very lackluster. It's very it's very uh, mm, I don't know, uh, just not that great. Uh, so moving on from this first part, uh, we get to the killing joke section, and again, I didn't really give a uh, synopsis on that because again. I'm assuming you guys have already seen the movie or read the book. You know what it is, but I'll give a little synopsis on this. Uh, Batman's investigating a murder scene with Bullock. He includes that the Joker, who's currently at Arkham Asylum, might be behind the crime. He goes to Arkham to talk to him to discover that Joker's escaped, and he's met someone else in his place as a decoy. I didn't catch it watching the movie, but apparently it was Franz, the guy from earlier in the movie. He was supposed to decoy in the comic. It was just some other prisoner. Uh, Joker then attacks Barbara and her father. Uh, what it is, and it's, uh, I, I love this in the original book. Uh, Barbara's at home. She's waiting for a friend of hers to come over for a uh, book study or something. I forget what it was now. So when her friends show up, there's a knock on the door. She goes answering, thinking it's her friend. And there's the Joker, buying shirt, camera. Rick is grinning all. Shoots Barbara. Comes in. They knock out commissioners, knock down Commissioner Gordon. <laughs> the Joker makes some great comments in here. He shoots Barbara Gordon. She falls to a coffee table, bleeding all over. And Barbara Gordon, at one time, was a librarian. So the Joker's making comments about you know, comparing Bar basically comparing Barbara Gordon as a, a library book, talking about uh, spines being broken and uh, the just jacket being messed up and things like that. Some great lines in this. In the book, uh, they've got the same lines in the movie. The lines, for some reason, to me, didn't come across quite as well. They came across a little more forced. I, I don't know if it's just that first part of the movie's turned me off by this point or what, but I wasn't entirely happy with some of the lines that I loved in the book. Uh, the same lines delivered, and again, I love Mark Hamill's Joker. So I, I don't want to say it's Mark Hamill's. Delivery of the line because he's a great actor. He's Luke Skywalker. He is the animated Joker for all intents and purposes as far as I'm concerned I, I don't know. It's just something the lines didn't come out. It seemed a little more forced here I don't know what it was. Maybe it was the timing was off a little bit. I, I don't quite know, but He shoots Barbara Gordon makes a few lines. They kidnap Commissioner Gordon and he, uh, like I say, he takes Gordon to an amusement park that he's recently bought. He strips Gordon down naked, pets him in a, uh, a cart in like a, uh, a tunnel of love type ride, and makes him go through repeatedly watching scenes of 
barber that he shot laying there naked, bleeding out on the floor. He's repeatedly doing that. And basically jumping to the, the, the whole point of the movie. Actually, I'll get that in a minute. Uh, the story is, meanwhile, intercut with flashback to the Joker's origin, or possible origin. As I've said uh, elsewhere, and possibly here, uh, the Joker has said that life is multiple choice, why can't his origin? So this may not be his origin, but it's what he remembers or his origin at times. It's revealed at one time uh, he quit his job to become a static comedian, only to fail miserably. Uh, his wife was pregnant, uh, and trying to find somebody to support his wife and pregnant his wife and upcoming child, he agrees to help these two criminals rob his former workplace, which is next door to Ace Chemical Factory, or Ace uh, Playing Cards or something like that. Uh, they tell him that he needs to use this Red Hood mask and cape costume. Uh, basically, they're saying that there's a different person under this mask every time. That way, it makes it harder to find out where this gang's at. Come to find out they're planning on framing him for this crime. While they're planning the, the crime, the police inform him that his wife, an unborn child, uh, died due to a household accident. Uh, Grief-stricken and pain, he tries to withdraw from the plan because, you know, he was doing this for the money to support his wife and child. Without them in the picture, he doesn't need the money, he doesn't need to do this criminal enterprise. But once you get in bed of criminals, it's a little hard to crawl out the next morning. Or even during the middle of the night, they're, they're going to stop him. And they forced him to continue, you know, you want, you committed to this, you're going to help us or else. Meanwhile, at the plant, the criminals and the costume comedian run into his security personnel. A shootout occurs, the criminals are gunned down, and the comedian is confronted by Batman, who's investigating the disturbance. Terrified, the comedian trips, falls into the chemicals plant's hazard uh, waste, and is swept through a pipe leading outside. As he removes his mask, he sees the chemicals have permanently disfigured his face, giving him a clown-like appearance. Uh, he's bleached white, green hair, with a rictus grin. A suicide Squad people from the, uh, WB, if you're listening, uh, rictus grin. Sorry, that's my own personal pet peeve. Uh, his disfigurement combined combined loss of his family, drives him insane, and transforms into the man that becomes the Joker. Meanwhile, back in present day, Batman finds and saves Gordon while the Joker flees. Despite his ordeals, Gordon remains sane and demands Batman to capture the Joker, in quotes, by the book. Batman follows Joker as Joker tries to persuade him that the world is just one big joke and that one bad day is enough to drive an ordinary man insane. And that's what things happened to him. He was an ordinary guy, a bad day, his wife and uh, fetus dying, him falling into the chemicals at the chemical factory was enough to drive an ordinary person crazy. He thinks one bad day can drive any person insane. A Batman subdues the Joker and tells him that he's failed, that Gordon's still sane, and the Joker's alone in his madness. He then attempts to reach out to him, offering rehabilitation. rehabilitation. Joker declines, saying it's too late, and then he tells him it's a situation reminds him of an old joke about two patients in a sane asylum where they try to escape by leaping over to adjoining building with flashlights lighting the way, one of the patients say, are you crazy? You turn the beam off as a halfway across. The Batman and Joker laugh at the joke as the police arrive. And then a mid-credits scene, Barber's in her wheelchair, entering a secret room in her apartment. She turns on her computer, and Oracle's logo appears on the screen, showing that she becomes Oracle. That's the synopsis for the second half of the movie. Um, I've already praised the this, this second half of the movie book form back on episode 10. 
I give it my highest compliments, my highest praise, fantastic artwork, good story, a great story. The interpretation on the screen, as I said, some of the lines didn't come across quite right. Uh, otherwise, it was a direct copy from the book to the movie. Uh, I'm not going to say that's a bad thing, because that's what I wanted to see. I don't want to see a lot of deviations. The, my major problem with it is, as I said earlier, the artwork. You take Brian Boland's uh, art, art style, and you use this animation with it, and it's just, uh, I don't know, it's just not it. It's... I, I wasn't happy with this movie. Again, I love the comic book, as I've talked about previously. I've said here repeatedly. Overall, I was severely disappointed with this movie. Uh, I thought the whole Batman, Batgirl, sexy on the roof, out of place, out of character. The animation was weak. Uh, the two stories tacked together didn't work quite right. I enjoyed the story-wise of the killing joke portion. Again, the first part of the story. Eh. And then the animation, as I keep saying, is just uh, subpar, in my opinion. Uh, the voice actors, again, did a fantastic job. Kevin Conroy, Hamill, Strong, all of them did a great job as far as voicing it. They, they were the characters. I, I can't complain about that. Other, uh, as far as the Killing Joke itself, I may have mentioned some of this. Again, it's been episode 10, so that's been a year ago and change. Uh, been, what, 17 episodes ago? A year and a half ago? A lot of people, a couple things about the story in general. A lot of people feel that Joker raped Barbara after he shot her. I'm, I'm here to say for the record, you guys are crazy. They're, if, if that's your interpretation, that's fine. That may say more about you than the, the book. And some have said that, uh, Alan Moore has said previously that he, he kind of hinted at that and it's up for interpretation. I see nothing in the story to represent that the Joker raped her to me. To me, the Joker shot her, he took pictures of her, raping her. I mean, if the Joker was going to rape her, it should have been a little bit more shown, a little more to let us know that it actually happened because that would have, you know, helped with driving Gordon insane. But I, I, it's why I don't think it happened because I think, and the Joker's not known for his subtlety. Uh, maybe subtlety for a joke, but not something like that. I, I think he was going to use that. He would have used it to the full knowledge he has, and he would have. I don't know, it would have been more than what they did. So I don't think, and I think people that think she was raped, that's just their own mind. It's, they've got some in their head, they think it's. I, I can't argue it because there's, I mean, there's nothing that shows everything that happened. Nothing in there that definitely says, you know, I didn't rape her, you know, I wasn't raped or anything. But to me, there was nothing in there to indicate that he actually did rape her. And I don't see the Joker as a, a rapey sort of criminal. He's insane. Uh, if it was for a joke, he might do it. But uh, I, I don't see the Joker raping her uh, just for the fun of it. Um, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. But... Yeah, I don't see that, and I, I'm going to disagree with anyone that says that she was raped, and that's part of the story. That has nothing to do with the story. The only sex that's insinuated in here is Batgirl and Batman, which is super creepy and super wrong, in my opinion. In fact, uh, there's a comment in here on, again, I'm looking at Wikipedia uh, from Bruce Tim, because there's a comment, I guess, in the movie, some people thought that there was an implication of rape because uh, someone 
said that it's made worse by a follow-up scene in which Batman is questioning a group of prostitutes, the whereabouts of the Joker. A girl tells Batman the Joker normally comes and sees him after he escapes. He likes a good time. But one of the girls said the Joker hasn't came to see him. He thinks maybe they found a new girl. And this guy's name is Jamie Riotti. Oh, it's a guy or a girl who wrote Jamie. So let that sink in for a minute. Barbara's the new girl. Barbara, who's been shot in the stomach and raped. Bruce Tim, meanwhile, denies the implication. He said, and this is on Wikipedia for the killing joke, I do not think that is supporting that. If I had, I probably would have changed the line. I never, ever thought that he actually raped her. Even in my first read of the comic, I never thought that. Hey, Bruce, I agree with you, buddy. I don't think there was any rape going on. Uh, but I guess that's enough talking about rape. Let's move on to the uh, other problem people have with the movie, or the Killing Joke story, both the comic and the interpretation on the film. At the very end of it, as I said, Batman and Joker are standing around. Joker tells a little joke. They start laughing. Joker, Joker stops laughing. Batman stops laughing. Then we have silence for just a moment. A lot of people say that means that Batman strangled the Joker and killed him. I don't for a couple different. I don't think that happened for a couple different reasons. One, uh, is as far as comic continuity wise, uh, this story is in comics continuity. I mean, there's references to this in later Batman comics. Barbara Gordon's crippled in here. She shows up later crippled. Become and that's why uh, the Master uh, John Ostender, who I talk about constantly over my Task Force X podcast, him and Kim Yale brought her back and created Oracle for her. Because they don't like the way she was treated in the movie. They don't, or the, I'm sorry, in the comic. They don't like the fact that she was shot and left, for, you know, to be crippled and no more. They enjoyed Batgirl. They wanted to do something with her. So they created Oracle, which I think, personally, and I've, I've had some conversations on, conversations on Facebook with Mr. Oscar about this. I was saying that the uh, Alan Moore and Brian Boland needs a little credit for Oracle. Because without them... Crippling Barbara, John and Kim wouldn't have had a character to come and revive as Oracle. So while you may not like what happened in the story, if you're a fan of Oracle, and again, I, I give, don't get me wrong, I give 110% credit to, to John and Kim. Uh, they can divide it amongst themselves how they see fit. I don't know whose ideas and who where the majority of the credit there lies, but I give all credit for Oracle and the great character she became to those two. Over in Suicide Squad, they took Barbara, they took a broken, discarded character that DC wouldn't do anything, do anything with anymore. They created a fantastic character called Oracle. But having said that, Brian Bolin and Alan Moore, I guess specifically Alan Moore, needs a tiny bit of the credit because, again, if he hadn't crippled Batgirl, if he hadn't shot her and done what he did, you know, Mad Joker do it. Uh, she wouldn't have been available to become Oracle. So, and again, they could have still done something with her, made her Oracle without being crippled. But my understanding that was the impetus behind making her Oracle. So, without the Killing Joke, you don't get to Oracle, which is a great character. Even if DC doesn't care about her anymore and's kind of screwed that up, in my opinion. Another story entirely, not for this podcast. Maybe another time. But I think Oracle's a great character. You don't get to Oracle without the killing joke. So, and a lot of people said that, well, no, this wasn't a continuity at the time. Uh, again, I bought this book shortly after it came out off the newsstand. There was nothing indicating it was an Elseworlds or not in continuity. Uh, everything to me applied this was a continuity story. There's nothing saying that, you know, this took place elsewhere. 
A lot of people said that no, it was a continuity until later. No, you're the. I think that you're trying to rewrite history for saying this was a not continuity. In fact, it was so much thought being continuity. I mean, I can't say 100% yes, it was continuity because I'm not Alan Moore. I, I didn't work for a DC editorial, but two fantastic writers, John and Kim, who worked at DC at the time. They had the Suicide Squad book going at the time. Yeah, that Suicide Squad going. They thought this was a continuity because they thought it destroyed Batgirl. So, if two writers at DC, involved with DC, at the time thought this was a continuity, who are you, someone that's sitting here outside of the comics industry saying, well, this is not a continuity? Who are you? Writers involved at the time, until I get something from whoever's had decent time or Alan Moore, and even then I'm not sure if Alan Moore, at this point, Alan Moore's con kind of... Ooh, a little wicky-wacky, if you ask me. Uh, he's very anti-DC, very anti-turning uh, his comics into other films and what have you. So, I don't know. I'm sure at this point if he can be trusted at this point. But, if you ask me, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, it's an incontinuity story. It always has been. It was intended to be. Until you can show me proof somewhere that it wasn't. But, again, like I say, both... John Ostender and Kim Yell thought it was a continuity, so as far as I'm concerned, it's an incontinuity story. Uh, my other problem with Batman killing Joker, in quotes, at the end of the movie, is that it kind of destroyed the whole movie. The whole movie is basically the Joker saying that any one person can, having a bad day, become insane like him. Can become a killer. That's why he kidnapped Gordon, shot Barbara. Because he wanted to prove that he could drive Gordon insane like he was by a bad day. Gordon telling Batman to capture him by the book, I want him brought in you know, legally and like you're supposed to, proves that just one bad day doesn't necessarily mean you're going to become a villain. I've got other thoughts on that. In fact, I've had conversations with people before about uh, Hal Jordan back after uh, Cyborg Superman and Mongo destroyed Coast City. Uh, he became a little wacky and became a supervillain known as uh, Parallax. Back when that story happened, back uh, I was on some new groups at the time. People were complaining about that, and that was my my whole thing was what the Joker saying here is that one bad day can can cause you to become a supervillain, can cause you to become wacky and lose touch reality. And again, people were arguing that you know, well, bad things happen to people all the time. Aren't there more villains in the comics? And I'm not saying that one bad day will make you become wacky and cuckoo and crazy, but one bad day can. So I'm kind of, kind of siding with the Joker here uh, a little bit that, you know, if you, if you have a really bad day, for instance, your entire city's destroyed, you think your, your family, your, your love interest, everyone that you know is dead. Later we find out that none of them were, but that's another story entirely. But you find out, you know, everyone you thought you knew and loved was dead while you're off gallivanting around the galaxy. To me, that could drive you to become a little insane. No, it doesn't have to. They could have moved on and made Talger not become Parallax. In fact, the original thing was he was going to quit being Green Lantern and they are going to pick somebody new. And again, I don't like that idea of him just quitting because it's been done a hundred times before. It seems like back in the day, every other week, Hal Jordan would quit being Green Lantern. So I thought it was a nice change, but that's another story for another podcast. Maybe I'll talk about that some other time. But let's get back to this story. Just because... It, a bad day can drive you insane. It doesn't have to. 
So if Batman kills the Joker at the end of the story, that kind of proves the Joker right. Even I just said I agree with the Joker, but for the purpose of the purpose of the story, he's not right. It doesn't have to. It can. Uh, and that's why Batman capturing Joker, pinning him in jail, proves that he was wrong, and that you know Gordon didn't go insane. Batman's following the rules, even though you know his ex assistant was shot and crippled, his best friend was kidnapped and tortured. It doesn't have to make you go insane. So uh, that's my problem with people saying that this is uh, the, the Batman killed the Joker at the end of this. It kind of throws that into the face and. Wait a minute, no. Uh, the other people, I, the other problem I hear people complain about, and again, I'm, I'm kind of left the movie. Well, not really, because it all happens in the movie too, but uh, this is all criticism from the original comic, which kind of bears over into this movie because it's the exact same story as far as this goes. A lot of people say it's very, uh, uh, I'm misplacing the word, uh, mis mis I, can't think, I can't think of the word now, sorry about that, where you're very anti-female. They're saying that Barbara Gordon was shot and took pictures of just to appease the, the male superhero. They're degrading females just to appease for the male uh, hero. That's not true. Well, it is, but it's not. It's not just Barbara. They're saying she was sexually assaulted. No, she wasn't raped. But yes, yeah, she was uh, stripped down naked. She had pictures taken of her naked, bleeding body. Yeah, that's a sexual assault. I'll give you that. But by that same token, James Gordon... Commissioner Gordon, a longtime staple of Batman comics, he was kidnapped, he was stripped down naked, he was forced to watch pictures of his daughter laying there bleeding. He wasn't crippled and shot, but he was just as abused, if not more, than his daughter. And he's a guy. So it's not uh, saying anything against women in this story. Both a man and a female were injured, were stripped down naked, and had horrible things done to them to appease the male, not to appease, but because of the male superhero in the story. And it's not because, again, DC writers hate females. It's because uh, most of the time, at the time, most of the writers were men, white male, they write what they know about, so the, most of the heroes are white male. That's why his supporting cast needs to suffer so Batman can overcome it. And that's why Barbara Gordon is a female, Commissioner Gordon, an older man, both were sexually assaulted in the story. One was crippled. The other, was, you know, was mentally abused. And again, it has nothing to do with let's hurt a girl f to improve this male story. It's Batman's supporting cast was injured to support a hero that happens to be a guy. Uh, so I, all of you that says, you know, this is a story about you know female bashing, you're, you're wrong, and you're using this to further your own your own agenda. And that's what I've always been saying. You can find, and again, I've said it's been about the internet, but you can find a point to back up almost anything you want as long as you're willing to tilt it towards your own point of view. Uh, again, I think, as I said, I, I don't think this has anything to do with all being a female being injured to tell a male superhero story. It's a, a both a male and a female cast member, or supporting cast member, if you will, for the Batman story. So... I don't know, that's just my opinion on it. Uh, overall, again, as I said, this movie, I, I love the original Killing Joke. Not as happy with, uh, not as happy as uh, with this story, as I said. 
Um, anyways, overall, it, it was an okay story, the movie. I, If you love the original book, uh, definitely check it out. But keeping in mind that it's not great as great as the original story in my opinion so i mean the story itself it's the story itself is or the last part of it is uh definitely you know that the story itself is great because it's directly taken from the original story the animation is eh, and the first part of it's kind of weak so uh, definitely check it out see what you think if you've seen it let me know what you think definitely email me at head at headspeaks.com and let me know what you think. I'm curious what you guys say. Uh, go ahead and let me know. Uh, and maybe I'll come back later with some more thoughts if you guys give me some more things to talk about. Anyways, uh, that's going to do it for this segment. Uh, hold tight and I'll be right back with you. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Head Speaks will be back after these messages. Hi, everybody. I'm Chad Bokelman. You may know me from the Green Lantern podcast, The Lantern Cast. You also may know me from making promises across the comics podcasting community concerning a new project I've been working on. An Action Comics Weekly podcast, to be precise. Well, it's time to deliver on that promise. The Action Comics Weekly podcast is a bi-weekly podcast featuring myself and a rotating cast of semi-regular co-hosts discussing the characters appearing in the comic series of the same name from the late 1980s. So, starting this summer, join me and Mark Marble as we discuss Green Lantern. For all the people that want to give Hal when he was Parallax a lot of shit about the way he acted, <laughs> Star Sapphire has nothing on Hal for being like pushed over the borderline because she's just completely friggin' nuts. Jay Jones as we discuss Wild Dog. He straight up, like you said, he, he murders these people. And that's that's not my DC Comics. That's not superheroic at all. Batman wouldn't have killed anybody. But the story this story is it's it's not bad, it's not great. It's it's like the character himself. It's like he's just it's just there. It just exists. Ben Avery as we discuss the Secret Six. So when I read this alone, as I was reading through this this issue, I'm thinking, what am I getting myself into? <laughs> I, I told Chad I'd do this, but I don't know if I'm going to like this. <laughs> I, I do end up liking Secret Six more. This is the introduction, and without this, you know, I probably wouldn't like you know the, the second chapter as much. Doug Zavisha, as we discuss Dead Man. <laughs> well, it's it's a kind of a waffly Dead Man story. It wants to be a dead man story. It starts to be a dead man story. It forgets it's a dead man story. And then it comes back to being one. Um, all in the span of eight pages. Alan Middleton as we discuss Blackhawk. That there's sort of this era of Blackhawk where he was sort of dissolute and sort of couldn't get civilian life together. Mm -hmm. And I think this story is either beginning that trend or at least tapping into that tapping into that fertile story. And Michael Bailey as we discuss Superman. 
there is really no way to tie this two-page strip into that. So it really exists in its own world at a time where the Superman books were becoming more and more linked. So it's this oddity on a number of levels. And many other characters featuring many more guest hosts along the way. The Action Comics Weekly Podcast. Coming soon, summer 2016. Find us on Facebook for more details. Hey, who likes Wild Dog? Who let the dogs out? No, 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 no. I'm taking this podcast seriously. There's no way that song will appear anywhere in the show or even the commercials. I'm doing this right. I'm FKA Jason of the Silver and Gold Podcast. On September 17, 2016, a new show will be appearing on the SNG feed. Wild Pod, a Wild Dog podcast, is a miniseries covering the DC Comics character that is sort of their answer to the Punisher, Wild Dog. I'll be covering the original four-issue miniseries, the 1989 special, and various other appearances of Wild Dog. Watch for it at SNGPod.com or the Silver and Gold feed on iTunes and Stitcher. Vance, why do we even own that CD? And now back to Head Speaks. Now it's time for... Faster than a speeding bullet. the great hall of the Justice League. Spider-Man and his amazing friends. The Justice League of America versus the Legion of Doom. This is Watson Head Longbox. Dedicated to truth, justice, and peace for all mankind. The world's greatest super friends. And we're back with the third installment of the Sword of the Atom. Superhero scientist Ray Palmer trapped at six inches tall in the Amazon rainforest. The Sword of the Atom. As I said, this is issue three of Sword of the Atom. It's entitled Morning's End. The cover date was November of 1983, but to buy this fresh off the newsstand, you got to be around August the 25th of 1983. Uh, just a little personal side note. August the 25th of 83, I was probably either had just started or was getting ready to start uh, where was I? 8th grade because I graduated 8th grade in 84 so I was just get, either just starting or I, I had just started 
eighth grade at that when this comic came out, and I wasn't collecting comics. I like cart- the superheroes, the cartoons, and things like that. But yeah, I wasn't into comics at this point. So when this came out, I was completely oblivious to it. Uh, the cover price was sixty cents. The editor was still Dick Giordano. Writer Jan Strand. Artist Gil Kane. Letterer John Costanza. Colorist Thomas J. Zuko. And the cover was, of course, by Gil Kane. And this was reprinted in the Sword of the Atom trade paperback, which came out in 2007. Uh, I'm not sure if I mentioned it before, but the Sword of the Atom trade paperback uh, collected, if I'm not mistaken, this Fortune miniseries, plus the three specials that followed it. And here's our synopsis. After a two-page recap of the first two issues, we continue where we left off from last issue with Adam and Voss fighting. Adam beats Voss and then asks him to be a second command. Taryn realizes he made a good choice in choosing Adam as his replacement, and Luithan agrees in more ways than one from the look on her face. Meanwhile, Pogar, the trainer from the first or from last issue, is pulled down from the town square while the king and his advisor debate the merits of turning on the star drives to power the city. DeGreus wants to start the drives up, and Kallik is opposed as he's afraid it would destroy the city as no one understands the old tech anymore. Back in Ivy Town, Gina's looking at Ray's ring, just knowing that Ray is still alive, hiding in South America, with Paul Hoban coming out of the shower. As Jean makes plan to head to South America, Ray is watching his warrior's train. He informs Lyothan that he's petting off the raid because he knows as soon as he announces it, Terran will try to kill himself so they aren't encumbered by a blind man. As they continue training, they're overrun by forest animals, which are running from a huge mass of ants, which is devouring everything in their path. As Adam, Lyothan, and Voss climb out of the ants' path of destruction, Terran throws himself into the ants, ending his life and letting Adam know it's time to start their attack on the city. Later, a spy sends a message to DeGreus, informing him that Terran is dead and the attack is commencing, which leaves DeGreus thinking about how, with Terran dead and the king to soon be disposed, that will leave him to become ruler. Back with the rebels, Loethan informs Adam that she's been warning Terran ever since he was blinded and her time of mourning is over. Hence the title. She would like to speak of love with Adam. Meanwhile, speaking of love, Jean is in hotel bar in Brazil, getting drunk and talking to herself about how Ray is hiding from her to make her life miserable. A man with the name of Pedro says that if man wants to stay lost in Brazil, he can. Back in the forest, Ray finishes his training by killing a caiman, which is a type of lizard. Then him, his men, and Loyothan get ready to ride for the city in our conclusion next episode. To be concluded. Dun dun dun! And now for my thoughts on the issue. As usual, we start talking about the cover. Again, miniseries 3 of 4 by Gil Kane and Jan Strong. Probably mispronouncing Jan's name, but S T R N A D, Strand, Strand, whatever. Uh, sort of the ad in the title. Again, I like this logo. Uh, one thing I will notate: uh, apparently, you can tell Gil Kane is the most popular or well-known. Usually, you have the writer and then the artist listed. Here, we have Gil Kane and 
than Jan's name listed. So uh, that tells us that Gil Kane, the writer, I'm sorry, the artist, is uh, more popular. Uh, maybe it's in his contract. I don't know how it worked, but Gil Kane's getting top billing here. Uh, the story, the cover itself, it shows uh, Ray with a sword with a giant uh, lizard. I mean, it looks like maybe a giant alligator, but compared to their sizes, I bet it's more of a giant lizard of some sort, is attacking him and uh, Princess Loyathan. Uh, she's on the ground, cowering, raised in front of her with a sword. I mean, by modern looks, I'm sure a lot of people would say this is a misogynist. You know, very much anti-female. Got the female down the ground, cowering, uh, looking kind of hot in her little metal bikini with Ray standing over protecting her, the big strong man protecting the little lady. But seeing how this is a play on gladiator type movies, it's very appropriate. And again, Gil Kane is usually one of those artists you either love or hate. I enjoy Gil Kane's work for the most part. I mean, there's some that's not quite as good. Uh, some of his faces aren't fantastic. They've got a lot of the same sameness about them. A lot of times if you look at a Gil, Gil Kane drawing, you can kind of tell it's Gil Kane. I mentioned this uh, over my Task Force X podcast. Gil Kane did some of the checkmate covers early on, and I mentioned there you can kind of look at it and see that it's a Gil Kane drawing. Uh, they're mainly his faces have a, a similar look about him, but this cover again, uh, it's a great cover. I think, like I say, we've got the, the giant beast roaring down on uh, Adam and his lady fair, if you will. Adam's got the sword up ready to strike it. It's a very dynamic, very imposing cover, I think. Uh, then we move on to the story. Like I said, the title of the story is Morning's End, which is referenced later on in the story, basically when Lawson uh, says she's been mourning Terran since he was blinded, and now her mourning's at an end. Her mourning's over, however she phrased it. Uh, I think it's kind of a reference to that, especially since mourning is spelled M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. So it lets us know that this this story is going to take a uh, is take a uh, a change here at this point. I like to say the first two pages is just kind of a recap of what's come before. I'm not going to really touch much on that. I mean, it's got the same artwork as before, so it's Gil Kane. It's good artwork, if not great. And then we get to the third page, and this is where we continue on from last issue with the two of them fighting. In fact, the first uh, panel is Ray hitting Voss. The second panel is basically a different shot of the last page of last issue where Voss is grabbing the arrow. Here he's got the arrow out. Ray's jumping at him. And again, like I said, they fight a little bit more. The first page here is just a little bit of fight-fight. And... Ray defeats him and basically tells him that, you know, you're, you're willing to stand up for Terran, even though Terran says that he approves of me, you're still mistrustful of me, you're thinking I'm a spy, you're looking out for Terran, you're, you know, one of his best friends, I could do, you know, I could use you as my second command. Uh, so, I mean, again, I, I think that's very... That's one way to take an enemy. 
and paying him to use, especially someone like Voss, who, again, I, I'm still not convinced he's not the traitor, but the Adam seems to be, uh, I think he's going to work out, so Adam wants him to be his second in command. And anyone they can take, you know, someone wants to kill you and turn you to your side and, and back you up and be your second command. I think this says a lot about the, uh, about Adam, about Ray Palmer and his character and who he really is. And then, like I, I mentioned in the synopsis, uh, Taryn says, you know, I made a good, uh, I feel like a good leader. And uh, I'm going to repeat uh, Lothian's line here. She's like, oh, Adam's more than that, my love. He's much more than that. Again, it's, it's text, it's written, so I mean, I, I just, the inflection I'm pitting into it, but I can imagine her talking like that. that like I said, she's been more, later on, she says she's been mourning Taryn. I think she's more than mourning at this point. She's falling in love with Adam because, you know, not only he's a good looking guy, but he's a powerful warrior. Uh, he's very charismatic. I mean, he's turned one of his enemies in the camp into his friend, or possible friend, at least second in command. So that says a lot about Adam and, and Leif and his. She's falling up on these instincts, I think. And she's falling for him, so. And like I said, we get back to this, the camp, or the city, and Degaris, we know his plan to make Kalik uh, look bad in front of his people's working. Uh, they're having the, uh, what was his name? Uh, Pogar, the trainer, they're having to pull it off the wall. And everyone's seeing that. And everyone thinks the king's behind this. So, again, Tajeris' plan is working as he expects. That, you know, people's going to hate the king. They're going to overthrow him once they've had enough of his bull. So, and then I mentioned that we get a little bit of a flashback of one of the engines of the uh, tanks here. And Tajeris is saying that. You know, if they can start the star drive back up and they can power Morladay, it can be like the machines. And at this point, they would have weapons and they become masters of the jungle. So, Dejeris is very much of a power hungry, looking for power, looking how to best himself. And uh, Kalak, the king, is he's looking out for his people. He's a afraid that since no one understands the star drives if something bad was to happen it could hurt him so he doesn't want him starting the star drive and again I mean as a king I mean, you could say he's a little afraid because he's but he's also I think he's wise because yes if you don't understand it I, I could go both ways I, I could see where uh, Dejera is saying that you know he's weak that he's he needs to be stronger and use these weapons he has. But on the other hand, I, I do see, and again, he's not weak. He's, he's very, you know, he's, he tells them, you know, the subject's closed. We're not using them because it's a danger because no one understands this. And, and if you do something wrong, you can kill us all. So again, so I, I like Dejeris, how he, or I'm sorry, Kalak, as he's standing up for what he believes in. And, you know, he slaps Dejeris down, tells him to get out of there. That What's his line here? What does it take to convince you? The drive is uncontrollable. It would kill us all. 
The subject's closed. Now, unless you have other business to discuss. And, uh, one interesting thing here, and this may be just translated from their language, as Dejeris is saying that they could use the, the star drive to power up the machines, they could rule the jungle. Kalak uh, backhands and says, The devil's in you, Dejeris. So, again, apparently they do have a belief in the devil, and I would believe a god of some sort. So, again, I don't know if it's just a translation or if they do believe in God and the devil. Uh, and again, it could just be a saying. I'm not quite sure. It's something that was interesting. An alien race also. And I guess a God, a god and a devil of sorts it, it would be, is common. I mean, even in our own culture, our world, which has different cultures, every culture has some form of God and devil. I don't think most of them call it the devil, so I don't know. And again, I may be looking too much at that one word, but it's kind of a throwaway line that, you know, he's, he basically thinks that uh, Dejeris has gone mad and want to use the machines. Like one of the, the uh, Dejeris' men tells him, I couldn't move over here. Does this mean I work on the star drive? And Dejeris yells, he's like, it means nothing. Continue your work. And if anyone asks, you're there by order of the king. So we can see that even though the Kings declared the Star Drive not to be worked on, that they don't understand it, leave it alone, uh, Dejeris has his men working on it, and they're trying to get it activated. So Dejeris, when he, as we can tell from you know his thoughts and what he's saying here, is that he plans on being king at some point. And then we go back to Jean laying in bed in her nightgown, Paul coming out of the shower. Uh, it doesn't tell us how long, how much time's passed between issue one and now. But it's been long enough, it tells you, you know, Ray's coffin's been laid to the ground. So, again, I don't know how long this has been, but it's been long enough for Jean to uh, hook up while she looked up Paul at the first issue before that. So, but yeah, we got Paul coming out of the shower, drying off. She's laying in bed looking at her wedding ring. And, and again, I mean, it's part of... Like I say, I, I haven't read a lot of the old stories yet. I still need to read them. But again, going by what uh, Diablo Frank said in some of his power, or Adam podcasts when we talked about these other issues, Jean was always kind of a, uh, a biznatch. So here, I mean, she she's kind of carrying that on. If so, she's thinking that, you know, Ray, as far as world's concerns, is dead because they found his ring. But she knows that he's alive, and, and she, she's very paranoid and very much me, 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 me. She feels that Ray's hiding out just to cause her problems. He's messing with her. He's hiding out somewhere in South America. And while, yes, he is alive, he is in South America, he's not so much hiding out. His costume is damaged. He's stuck at six inches high. He's stuck with these other people, so not much he can really do. So he's not... He's not hiding out. He, he's stuck in South America. But Gene feels that he's doing this, I don't know, to get back at her or to, to, to mess with her. So again, that kind of keeps playing down there, keeps playing Gene as the villain, if you will, which will come back years later uh, in full force. But that's another story for another podcast. Uh... I don't know, I mean, I just, uh, I, 
Jean's an attractive woman, don't get me wrong. As my buddy Shag would say, she's hot. But she's a bit paranoid, a little a little cray-cray, they would say. I guess the kids would say nowadays. But let's leave the cray-cray woman behind. We're back in the jungle where they're training. And again, we're just getting some little behind-the-scenes type stuff. And not really so much behind-the-scenes, but we're getting some discussion about how the troops are getting restless and that they're having to make weapons. And Ray says, yeah, you never have too many arrows because Voss is questioning them that, you know, the men are ready, you know, they won't wait forever. They need to go out there and fight. And Wyothan comes to the Adam's defense and says, Adam knows what he's doing, Voss. And Voss is like, so do I, Princess. We all know what Adam's doing. And she tells, you know, Adam, after Voss walks away, don't pay him any mind. He's a fool. He's a callous idiot. And again, as Lyothan came to Ray's defense, Ray is coming to Voss's defense and saying, you know, he's neither, though he's not an idiot, or a callous idiot, or a fool. He's a realist. He speaks his mind. And he admits to Lyothan that he has been paying the battle off, as I said earlier, because he knows that Taryn would never let them enter the battle encumbered by a blind man. The day I say we're ready is the day he dies. So again, so Ray, he knows they're going to have to fight, but he also knows when that day comes, Taryn doesn't want to encumber the team, so he is going to uh, some way sacrifice himself so they, they're not being encumbered by a blind man. And I'm going to take a break in the story real quick. I don't usually mention ads for the most part unless it's something interesting. I'm going to mention this ad. It's a, uh, for those of you, I don't know if it's still around or not, back when I was younger, they had the Columbia House Record Club or whatever it was, where you'd buy records and tapes from Columbia House for a penny or whatever it was and buy a few more. Well, apparently, I didn't realize this, but Columbia also dabbled in video games. You can buy video games for $4.95 a piece. That Donkey Kong, Gorf, uh, Car Carnival looks like, Wizard of War, Zaxxon, Frogger. Uh, just I thought that was interesting. And again, you can buy the game for four ninety five, and you agree to buy two more games at regular club prices. Looks like two. Okay, yeah, two more game, two more games at regular prices, or you can order two games for four ninety five a piece. And then you'd be ready to buy four more games at regular price in the next two years. So again, I, I don't recall this offhand. Uh, but so not only did Columbia House deal with music, they also had video game sales. It's interesting. Uh, just real quick for anyone out there listening to this, uh, did any of you guys know of this? Did any of you guys take Columbia House up on their uh, Columbia Video Game Club and, and buy any of these games? Let me know. I'd be curious to know what you, you know, what you think, or your, your thoughts on it, and if anyone actually did this or not. And it looks like the video games were at the time twenty-five to thirty dollars. So uh, games were about half the price they are now for a new game. Uh, but again, for anyone that's my age that played these games. Uh, yeah, you can, uh, the video, you know, the graphics is nowhere near as great, so, uh, 
I still love some of these old games. And again, this was for these were for games for the Atari video game computer system. Uh, it doesn't say for the 2600 or which, because I know there's several different Ataris. Personally, I have the Atari 2600, but anyways, I guess that's uh, let's get on stop with that. Let's get on to the story itself again. So as the, the guys are fighting, they're they're uh, wrestling around trying to uh, train. They see a bird swooping down, an ant wren coming down, swooping a couple of ants, and Ray's like, I, I don't understand what's the panic. What's what's wrong with a couple of birds? And Eliath's like, it's not the birds, what follows, we have to get out of here. And he says she says that. All of a sudden lizards, a little monkey, some other birds. Uh, can't tell what all these are some mice. Some cats of some sort. Other birds come running out of the jungle. Uh, the men start jumping on frogs and start leaping away. And Voss, Lothan, Adam start climbing a tree and they take Terran with them. As they're climbing, uh, Voss tells them that you know they're running from the ants. They're on the move and where they go, no living thing is safe. And so we see a bunch of ants. It doesn't say what type of ants unless I'm missing it. Says there's a black pulsing wave pouring from another brush, and basically there's a bunch of ants. They show that it's crawling on top of a lizard that they're just devouring as they crawl over them. I don't know how true this is. Um, I'm not a big uh, expert on ants or the uh, South American rainforest. I don't know if this is true or not. And again, I've just been too lazy to look it up and see now that I have access to the internet. So I don't know how true this is. But in the story-wise, these ants are devouring everything. Saray tries taking Terran up higher. Uh, Terran says, no, leave me here. It's my time to die. Ray socks him and starts carrying him up. And he pets Terran down so he can pass Loyafin up to Voss. And I like this. Terran's in there. He's like, let me see. Ray's telling him, you know, okay, it's your turn, Terran. And Terran says, no, it's your turn, Adam. You are a good friend. And he just leaps off, covering his face as he dives down. And the last we see of Terran is just his hand up out of a swarm of ants as they're crawling over his hands. So again, Terran sacrifices himself because he knows that. And again, Terran, as we've discovered over the story, is a smart man. He knows that Ray is, even though they didn't actually say this from Terran's point of view, we know, we're pretty sure that Terran knows that Adam is petting off the battle for his sake. And Terran, being a good leader, knows that this is a perfect time to die. Uh, as they say in a lot of gladiator movies, today is a good day to die. Terran thought so as he sacrificed himself. And Adam, you know, fights off a couple of the ants where he realizes he, he uh, needs to get to safety. And like this race looking down over the ants and he's sitting there saying, I don't deserve your place, Terran. Not yet. The jungle is master today. But before I lead your men in battle, I swear the master will be me. Very, and again, saying it out loud, it, it's kind of corny, but it, it's very gladiatorial, gladiatorial? Gladiatorial? In nature. And again, we get the, the spy. We don't see who it is. But he's shooting an arrow at one of the guards with a note that he takes the, to Dejeris. And here again we get Dejeris thinking about how his plans have worn fruit. 
The people think Halak's a cruel madman. So if Terran dead, the only other man they can crown king. Let me try that again. Terran's dead, and Terran, in Dejeris' opinion, was the only other man they would crown king. So once they get tired of uh, Kalish's BS, he's, uh, Dejeris is pretty sure they're going to revolt, take him down, and then Dejeris can step up and be king. And he can start the star drives as he wants to do, apparently. And then, like I say, we get, so, you know, it's, it's, very, it's a very uh, masterful plot. He's been working on it for a while, as we've been seeing in the story. Uh, not a nice guy. And then we get back to Ray in the jungle talking to Lathan, as I covered in the uh, synopsis that, and she says in here, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to say something to you, Adam, and you're going to think I'm terrible. I'm terrible, but first let me explain. Life goes by very quickly for us. You see how fast, poor things to live, to love, and feel as much as possible. The moment Terrence stepped into the arena blinded, I began to mourn him. It was as if he had already died. I knew he could never survive out here like that. He knew it too. We both knew he wouldn't cling to life when it meant jeopardizing so many others, others whose time was more precious, was as precious as our own. He accepted his situation bravely. If I was to be worthy of his love, how could I do any less? I mourned him every last day of his life. As we talked, even as he lay in my arms, I mourned him, and when he didn't hear, I cried until I had no more strength for tears. I'll still cry for Terran, I know, when I think of what we had, but I'm through with mourning. Time is too dear. Is it too soon to speak of love, Adam? Adam? Love between you and me? And there's a, kind of a corny picture here where their hands are touching and swirly color things lights behind Adam as he says, no, it isn't too soon. So again, it's just Adam often declares their love for one another. Some might say it's a little callous, a little soon. Seeing how Taryn just died. But as you said, to them in the jungle, he died when he was blinded because he knew they both know that he wouldn't survive long. A blind man out in the jungle, six inches high. Uh, there's no way for him to survive without someone watching over him 24 hours a day, which is just, again... A blind man in our society, you can get by, you can live fine, but in the jungle where everything is a struggle, uh, not so much. And they're back with Crazy Jean. She's in the bar. Guys are hitting. I don't like it. She's in some bar in Manas, Brazil. She's nursing her drink. And, you know, you got this guy hitting on her. Hey, honey, hear about the one? You hear the one about the pig and the wooden leg? And she's kind of ignoring him. She's just kind of mumbling that, you know, she knows he's here. I can feel it. Ray's not the sort of guy who'd let a little thing like death keep him from making my life miserable. The dude talking to her is like, uh, yeah, uh, well, good luck and all. I always get the Looney Tunes. Uh, yeah, I know how you feel, buddy. I've been there myself on the Looney Tunes. But yeah, so Ray, again, Gene, and this kind of, again, I don't want to get into identity crisis, but this kind of, her, her, Mental state in throughout this series, to me anyways, leads up to what we get in Identity Crisis. I haven't hadn't read these in years, but yeah, reading these now, if you haven't read Identity Crisis, you may want to read it. And her mental state here kind of plays into that, I think. 
again, what do you guys think about that? The ones that have read Identity Crisis, have read this story, you see a correlation at this point? I don't know, just... Jean's a little crazy. You see her face, she's got that crazy look. And then, again, we end the story, Ray's fighting some dragon... Not dragon, but a lizard creature. He throws a sword inside the creature's mouth, and, and there's the poison on it, which kills it. And at this point, he knows he's ready to go, so he, he gathers up Voss, his man, and we end the story with Ray talking to Wyeth and telling me, are you sure you want to do this? And he's like, of course, I'm ready, let's do it. And so the end ends with a splash page of Adam and all his men on their frogs leaping off. In the background, we see a close-up of Adam with a sword held high. To Morley! With like a... Uh, uh, the closest I can think of this thing behind him is kind of a, uh, what is that, a sun flare that J.J. Abram uses a lot. It's kind of like a sun flare on here, solar flare, whatever, on here. And it says, be here for this spectacular conclusion, book four. Look homeward, Adam. And then the, the final page of this, not the final page, the next page after the story ends, we get a the cover of issue four, and then we get an ad for Green Lantern telling that uh, beginning this October, Len Wein and Dave Gibbons will take over the Emerald Gladiator, places he's never gone before. New foes, new friends, new thrills. The new Green Lantern is coming, and he's coming for you. And we get a advertisement for Burger Time, which I've talked about previously. James Bond 007. A lot of, again, this was 83. The Atari 2600 was a big video game system then. I had one myself at this time. I had this and the Intellivision. Mom spoiled me and my brother at times, I think. But so I never played the 007 one. Like I said, I had Burger Time for the Intellivision. And they mentioned on here on the Burger Time that's, you know, for the Intellivision, Atari 2600, Apple II, or IBM personal computer. I had two of those devices, the Atari and the Intellivision, as I said. A year after this, I would get the Apple IIc, which was the portable version. I don't think I played this on that system. I think I just played it on the Intellivision. But again, I'm talking about video games and ads, so I think that's it for this. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and wrap up this issue. Uh, what do you guys think? Let me know what you think. Did you guys enjoy this? Did you like the storyline? Uh, definitely send me your thoughts. You can send them to head at headspeaks.com or you can also send them to sword of the atom at headspeaks.com. Uh, let me know what you guys think about this story. I love hearing from you. Or if you want, you can do like our friend Ben Avery did last episode. Send us an MP3 of your thoughts, and we can play them on the air. But let us know what you think. I'm curious, and I say we like in the royal we. Uh, but let me know what you think. I'm curious of your thoughts. Yeah, but anyways, I guess that'll do it for Sword of the Atom issue number three. After these words from some podcasting friends, we'll move on with our next segment. Head Speaks will be back after these important messages. Guys, we finally developed our time machine. Should we use it to go back and see how Stonehenge was built? Or become friends with Hitler and convince him to stay in art school? Or we could go back in time and get the comic books we missed. Yeah! yeah! The Comic Book Time Machine. A journey back in time to explore comic books. Good and bad whether from seven decades ago or seven days ago. Join our journey at comicbooktimemachine.com.
Xenozoic Xenophiles. A fan podcast devoted to the comic series Xenozoic Tales. It's a post-apocalyptic adventure series filled with Cadillacs and dinosaurs. I'm Ruth. And I'm Darren. We hope you'll join us as we discuss the stories, characters, and art in this excellent comic series from creator, writer, and artist Mark Schultz. Xenozoic Xenophiles is available at podbean.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. And find us at xenozoicxenophiles.com. And now back to Head Speaks. We're back, and now it's time for... Get set. We're riding on the internet. The internet is really, really great. For porn. I got a fast connection so I don't have to wait. For porn. What? There's always some new site. For porn. I browse all day and night. For porn. It's like I'm surfing at the speed of light. For porn. Internet porn, Roman orgy scenes Internet porn, dominatrix queens Internet porn, girl on girl on girl on girl on girl on guy on sheep You're going surfing on the internet Where is head going? This episode of Worst Head Going, we're going to look at another podcast I listen to. Uh, this month, we're going to listen or talk about the Long Box Crusade. That's the Long Box Crusade. Uh, this is ran by a uh, an online podcasting buddy of mine, uh, Pat Sampson. In fact, when he got started, he was emailing me for advice. He was listening to my of my shows or some of my shows, and so Pat decided to start his own. Uh, podcast called, the, as I said, The Long Box Crusade. On this show, Pat takes a look at uh, one of the comic books out of his box. He's got a bunch of long boxes in his uh, basements from the 70s, 80s, and 90s and beyond. And uh, his wife questioned him, I guess, one day, you know, what's he going to do with them all? So he said he's going to try rereading them all, starting from the very beginning, and look at them somewhat of a chronological order as he received them. So each month he looks at a new issue, I say new issue, another issue from his book Long Box, and he reviews it and talks about it and does what his podcasters do. Uh, so far I've listened to his shows and I'm enjoying them. Uh, Pat's a, a great guy, he's got a great voice for radio. Uh, in fact, he was on the 12th episode of G.I. Joe, a real American headcast, as a guest host. So far he's had four episodes. The first episode covered Spidey Super Stories number 19 from 1976. His second episode covered Star Wars number 4 from July of 77. His third episode covered Star Wars number 5 from August of 77. And his latest episode covered, you guessed it, Star Wars episode 6 from September of 77. So I definitely recommend checking out uh, The Long Box Crusade. He's on iTunes and all the places where you catch your, your feeds at. Uh, you can also check him out on Facebook by looking for Longbox Crusade. And his website is, of course, 
www.longboxcrusade.com. So definitely check out Pat's website, check out his podcast, and let him know the head sent you. But anyways, uh, that's we're going for this time. Hold on, and we're going to bring out Head's Mailbox. Mail time! Here's the mail, it never fails. It makes me want to wag my tail. When it comes, I want to wail. You've got mail. This time we're going to start off with Facebook likes, comments, shares, what have you. And again, I get behind on these sometimes. I forget where I'm at. So I'm going to start where I think I was at. So some of these may be duplicates. If so, that's all right. Uh, So the following people have liked and commented and shared the head cast or head speaks. Ben Avery, Dan Higby, sorry, that was Dan Higby, Secret Origins Podcast, Ryan Daly, Tim Wallace, Gene Hendricks, The Silver and Gold Podcast, who has a new show out called Wild Pod, looking at the Wild Dog uh, DC miniseries from back in the late 80s. It was a good series from what I remember. I listened to the first episode, and it's a good episode. Anyways, uh, Pat Sampson, Nicholas Prom. Mike Gillis, Roger Preeb, The Longbox Crusade, and Pat Sampson, who you've heard me talk about recently. And moving over to Twitter, which I'm a little more organized this time. Again, these are people that either liked or retweeted or followed or whatever. Uh, So we're on Twitter. We have Amish Baby Machine, Ange, Austin L. Brooks, Cash Flag, Charlton Hero, Coffee and Comics Blog, Dark Side is Here. I'm sorry, I guess I should... Dark side is here. Diablo Frank, Dr. G Nerdologist, Dude, Imagine If, EMA Hip Hop Podcast, The Fire and Water Network Podcast, Firestorm Fan, Hicks, Ken Solo, what is relation to Han? Anyways, Matches Blown, Mike Gillis, Pod Dylan, Sean at Odd McCobb, Sean McLaughlin, Silver and Gold, the Silver Gold Podcast, So Gallifrey, The 108th Stage, The Whatnots, Trekker Talk, Two True Freaks, Warlord Worlds, Willie Yarborough, and Xenozoic Xenophiles. Thanks, guys, for all your likes and shares and comments and all that. And again, if I've missed anybody, please send me an email or let me know. I apologize if I missed anybody. It's just being down so long, being sick, and trying to record with the kid. Sometimes I get forgetful and forget things or misplaced things. So if you like something or I missed you, definitely let me know about it. Uh, also, my usual plea, if you guys listen to the show, if you like the show, even if you think the show's just decent, uh, go ahead and rate us over on iTunes. Give us a review. It'll help bring up the profile of the show. In fact, uh, I'm going to say this for all my shows. If you like any of the Headcast Network shows... Uh, whether it be this one, Task Force X, the Starman Manhunter Adventure Hour, or G.I. Joe, a Real American Headcast, or even my daughter's show, Alexa Speaks, when I get those out, uh, go over to iTunes if you listen there and rate us, give us a review, let me know what you think. Also, you can send us an email. Uh, if you want to send us something on this show, send it to head at headspeaks.com. And as I say, if you want to send an MP3 file in, you can send that. I'll play your thoughts on the air. 
or just send us an email, go to the blog at head.headspeaks.com or on Facebook, you can look for Headspeaks or just the Headcast Network and leave a message on there. I definitely enjoy hearing from people. Uh, let me know what you think about The Killing Joke, the, the movie. Let me know what you think about the third issue of The Sword of Adam. And I think that's going to do it for this episode. And for my final song, uh, today I'm going to play a little John Bon Jovi, I believe it is. Shot Through the Heart. There's an old song from the 80s that I enjoy. So after the credits, stay tuned for Bon Jovi, Shot Through the Heart. Speaking of end credits, um, I was listening to it and I noticed I need to do some updates on it. So hopefully next episode I'll have a new end credit scene. But anyways... So until next month, when I'll be covering the fourth and final episode, I'm sorry, issue of The Sword of Adam, plus whatever else I decide to throw on that episode, remember, Head has spoken. Thank you for listening to another fantastic episode of Head Speaks. Hope you enjoyed it. If so, let me know. Drop me an email to head at headspeaks.com or visit our home at head.headspeaks.com. You can also visit and talk with me on Facebook and Google+, both under Head Speaks. You can also send an MP3 file with your thoughts, and I can play that on the air. And you can also get more of me on my other podcasts. Be sure to listen to Task Force X, where monthly I look at John Ostinger's Suicide Squad and Paul Kuppenberg's Checkmate comics from the 80s and early 90s. Also, over on G.I. Joe, a real American headcast, my podcasting friends Ryan Daly and Kyle Benning, along with myself, are looking at all of the G.I. Joe, a real American hero comics, and related titles from Marvel and IDW. All of my headcasts are available on iTunes and Stitcher, along with the respective blogs and my main page at headspeaks.com. All, all comments, thoughts, and opinions expressed on Headspeaks are owned wholly by the speaker of said comments and do not express the opinions of Headspeaks, unless, of course, I'm the one making the comments. Headspeaks, Task Force X, and G.I. Joe, a Real American Headcast, are all part of the Headcast family. So join us next month for another wonderful episode of Headspeaks. Until then, I'll see you in the funny pages. Good night.